Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. So good to see you. Glad that you're here. You glad you're here today? Amen. Hey, we can have a good time, can't we? Maybe. You're not sure? All right. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Chris. I have the honor of serving as a senior pastor at BT Church. I have the privilege of taking us into God's Word today. So you have a copy of God's Word, digital or physical, why don't you meet me in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 found in the Old Testament. As you turn there, let me do a few things. Let me echo what Peter's already done by welcoming all of our VIP first-time guests in the room and online. Let's one more time make some noise for our VIPs today. So glad you're with us. Thankful that you made that decision. And again, we want to welcome our BT Online family tuned in for wherever you're watching. Let's make some noise for BT Online one more time. Hey, one of the things we believe at BT is we believe that the church should have a culture of celebration. Um, and the funny thing about celebration is it's a discipline. And so just like any discipline, if you don't do it, you're not good at it, right? Uh, I think that a problem we have in our society today is there's a lot of churches that gather and they're just grumpy about everything, right? And part of that reason may be that they stop celebrating what God is doing. So when we celebrate as a church, it's not about us and about who we are and what we've done. It's about God and what he has done and what he is doing. And so we celebrate those things. So I celebrate with you today that so far this year, 219 people have said yes to Jesus, receiving him by grace through faith. Uh, as the savior of their lives. And we also celebrate that to date, 117 people have taken the next step that we call believer's baptism, entering the baptistries of our campuses and being obedient and going public with their faith. Uh, You may have heard me call baptism believer's baptism. And if that's a new phrase for you, let me just uh, clarify why I use that phrase. At BT, we believe that the Bible teaches us that baptism, whether you're sprinkled as an infant, dunked as an adult or anything in between, cannot make you right with God. Uh, it's it's really a bad bath if you don't have Jesus already in your heart. And so water does not make you right with God. Grace through faith makes you right with God. Receiving and believing makes you right with God. And we believe that when we have confessed Jesus as Savior, the Bible tells us our next step is to be obedient in baptism. And so we call it believer's baptism because until you've believed, baptism doesn't really mean anything. And so we celebrate those people that because they've been made right with God, have been obedient in baptism. And so we celebrate what God is doing here in our church and all of our campuses and pray he would continue to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think. Uh, We are in a series called Rise Up as we're walking through the book of Nehemiah. And what we're doing as we look at this book is we're looking at how we rise up in our faith. How do we rise up to be all God's called us to be? How do we rise up to give our full yes to God? And so if you've missed a sermon, you can uh, catch that online. Easiest way to do that is go to YouTube, search BT Church, and you can find the past sermons. If you haven't done so, subscribe while you're there. You'll get an alert for any time we post a new video, but sermons are also on our app or on our website. And if you've missed one, let me give you the really quick recap of what's going on. So in the book of Nehemiah, what happens is the nation of Israel has actually split. That kingdom has become two kingdoms. There's a northern and southern kingdom, uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And over time, the people of Israel and Judah, they turned their hearts from God. And so God allowed these nations to be conquered. And so first, uh, the Babylonians, the Babylonian empire came in and conquered the northern kingdom. And, and then Persia would come and conquer Babylon and the southern kingdom as well. And so while we read Nehemiah, Nehemiah, what's happening is the Persian Empire is in rule, and Nehemiah serves in the court of the king of Persia. And Nehemiah opens up 
with uh, the, the chapter one that Nehemiah has a burden because he has been made aware that his hometown, Jerusalem, is still in ruins and, and God's telling him to do something about it. And what we learned in week one is, is that our first response in times of distress is not our best friend, not our spouse, not, not our cable news channel of choice. Our first response is God. And Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer and what what happens from that we see in chapter 2 is he goes to the king to ask permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The king gives him permission, gives him provision, gives him protection. So Nehemiah can set out. And when he gets to Jerusalem, you know what he found? A busted up city, right? He, he found the city in ruins. And sometimes in life, we go through brokenness and the dark night of the soul. And what we have to do is, is we have to acknowledge there's ruins and believe God can do something about it. But today, there are people in churches across our country that aren't seeing God do great works in their lives, not because, because God is unwilling or unable, but because they're not willing to acknowledge the fact there's ruins that need to be fixed. God will not force himself upon us when we recognize that we need him to intervene and cry out to him, then the restoration work starts. Nehemiah recognized that walls needed to be rebuilt. And then he, then he gets opposition, right? Sanballat and Tobiah, he gets opposition. We learn from Nehemiah, you got to fight the right fights, right? The problem is some people fight all the fights and some people fight none of the fights and both aren't right. We got to fight the right fights, and then what we saw last week in Nehemiah chapter 5 is the greatest fight is the fight for peace, right? Because we have been reconciled to God as believers, we, we, need to, we need to be ambassadors, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, of reconciliation. And, and we need to fight for peace. And then today in chapter 8, we're going to talk about how we fix our focus. How do we fix our focus for us as New Testament believers? How do we fix our focus on Jesus? Because the truth is our hurts our, our uh, temporary pleasures of this life, our situations and circumstances. There's so many things around us that want to shift our focus off of God. And when that happens, things go sideways. And so how do we fix our focus and keep our focus on the author and perfecter of our faith as we would read in the book of Hebrews. What we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that uh, from 6 and 7, chapter 6 and 7, which we're skipping over, uh, good news, the construction project got completed, right? And churches always celebrate when a construction project gets done. None of y'all have been a part of those, I guess, but anyways. Um, guess what? You are now. Uh, I said this last week, and let me just celebrate again with you that our student building here in McAllen that we call the pavilion, that metal building by the pool, is officially under construction. Amen? Make some noise. Inside has been demolished, and that project is underway. In about nine months, we will have a first-class facility for teenagers across the valley to come uh, and hear the good news of Jesus and have fun while they're doing it. So the, the project got completed, right? There was some opposition, but the project got completed in, in 6 and 7, and the exiles went home. The exiles, the, the, the Jewish people had been exiled, and they made it back to Jerusalem. And what we're going to see as we pick up chapter 8 is when they get there, they, got, they have church. Arguably, forty to 50,000 people gather for, for the hearing and the proclaiming of the word of God, and something powerful happens. And so we're going to take a look at what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8 as we talk about how we can fix our focus today as believers. Let's take a look at the first uh, eight verses, and then we'll hit the pause button. Pause button. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked, everybody say, they asked. 
the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. What happened? They asked that he would give them the word. Let me just tell you, next Sunday when I get up to preach, before I say a word, just ask me to bring it, all right? Right? I just say, it's okay to do that. And you know, you know the rules, by the way. I've said this before. Every time you say amen, praise the Lord, or clap, 15 seconds comes off the sermon, right? I mean, it's, you just, yeah, don't abuse your power. Some of y'all ain't right with God. And you're going to abuse that power and get, get even more not right with God. So, all right. So they asked, right, that this would happen. Verse 2, on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. And while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So all of you, they're like, oh, I can say amen and make the sermon shorter. I'm just saying in the Bible, these men and women had no problem from sun up till noon to listen to the word of God. So maybe we just need to get a little more spiritual around here. But anyways, I'm going to keep going. Verse four. <laughs> now I don't know what you're messing with me now. You're messing with me. <laughs> Verse four. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah stood beside him on his right, and to his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, and Hashbaniah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Gotta love it when the text has all the Hebrew names in one verse, right? Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, with their hands uplifted. All the people said, amen, amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. Verse 8, they read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was read. Translation, they had church. They had church. They asked Ezra to read. He read for hours, and then people went amongst the people and made sure they understood what they heard. Beloved, today, if we're going to fix our focus on the author and perfecter of our faith, if we're going to make sure that the circumstances around us, the highs and lows, peaks and valleys, all those things don't get our focus off of God, here's the first thing you can write down. We got to make sure our passion is pointed in the right place. Our passion. I had you repeat with me the phrase they asked because what we see happening here is the people are having a passion to have the word of God brought to them. Now, what we know historically is that it had, it had been quite some time since this had happened. Since the Babylonian captivity, they probably had not gathered in such a way and they had not heard the word of the Lord proclaimed like this. Remember that these people, they didn't have a copy of the Bible that they took home with them. And so if they weren't able to gather and have the scribes and the priests read from the law, then they weren't getting the word of God. And so their passion now is being repurposed and and refocused on God. Three things about their passion, right? They asked for the word of God, verse one. They listened to the word of God, verse three. And they responded to the word of God, verse six, right? They asked for it. They listened. Now listen to me. Every once in a while, the text serves the preacher well. 
I understand it's getting near noon and lunch plans have been made and stomachs are growling and the watches are going to get checked in a few moments. I see it. I see it. Joking aside, though, they wanted it and then they gave their attention to it. They, were, they, they, they listened, but then they responded, right? Verse six, they said, amen and amen. And they, they bowed down and knelt low. They responded to what the word of God had revealed to them. Beloved, today, if we wanna fix our focus, we gotta make sure that our passion is pointed in the right place because just while, while our passion pointed to God helps our focus stay on track, when our passion goes anywhere else, things go haywire. And so they had not been able to have this happen in quite some time, and now they want it, they listen to it, they respond to it. Verse 9, let's pick up where we left off here. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, since today is is holy, don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. And so first off, we want to fix our focus. We got to make sure our passion is in the right place, that we're taking our passion and we're pointing it to Jesus. The, 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 the people in the text, the, the, they, they, they had a passion to receive again the word of God, which caused them to listen and respond. But second thing you can write down is we need to pursue the presence of God. Write the word presence down. Right, we gotta, have, we gotta have passion in the right place, but we need the presence of God to be filling that passion that we're exercising. In verses 9 through 12, we see this described. It tells us that as they heard the word and as it was explained to them, it says that they began to weep. Now, we, we don't see chapter and verse why they were weeping. It's not there, so I'm gonna give you some commentary. It's possible that they were weeping because it had been quite some time since this had happened. Maybe they were weeping because they were finally back together again, my own opinion. I believe they were weeping because as the law was being read to them, they were remorseful of the sins that led them to captivity to begin with. Their sins and the sins of their ancestors, they were, in my opinion, okay, my opinion, they were overcome with remorse that led to repentance over their actions that had led them astray from God's design. Their passions got pointed in the wrong place and the presence they pursued wasn't his. But don't miss this. This is how fixing our focus is directly connected to pursuing the presence of God. Because while they are weeping, Nehemiah, Ezra, right, they make it clear that they say, hey, tell the people to stop weeping because today is holy unto the Lord and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a party. And it says in verse 10, pretty well-known verse, it says, then, then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared since today is holy to our Lord, do not grieve, here's why. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So we pursue the presence of God to keep our focus fixed where it should be. And in that pursuing of the presence, hear me, it does not mean that we do not have remorse over our sins. You you will find nowhere in scripture where we are not called to have remorse and to repent from our sins. But you will also not find in scripture that God condemns us once we've been made right with Jesus. So when we are mindful of the sins that we have in our lives, when we are mindful of the ways that we have gotten off course, then we weep, right? But it's critical to note that as they pursued the presence of God, they weren't told to keep weeping. They were told to start celebrating. And what was the why? Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. A few things about that phrase. This is the only time in the English Bible that that Hebrew word is translated strength. Now listen to me. I don't bring this up to make you think your English Bible is not sufficient. It absolutely is. But just to kind of encourage you, what this word is usually translated as is either refuge or fortress. Strength works, but this just kind of drives it home. The joy of the Lord is our fortress. It is our refuge, right? And so when we find ourselves where we've gotten off course, our focus has been shifted, we're mindful of our sinfulness, we're remorseful and repentant, then we stop the grieving because we are reminded that we have a refuge, we have a fortress that is the joy of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting phrase, joy of the Lord. Uh, we, we could rightly read that to mean that the joy that I place in the Lord is my refuge, right? The joy that I find in him, the joy that I find in the Lord is my strength. I believe that the joy that we take in the Lord does strengthen us, but I would argue from the text that that is not what's being said, but what is being said in the text is the joy the Lord has over his people is the refuge. And I would get that from Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17, also in the Old Testament, where we are told that our Lord is a warrior who rejoices in you. He delights in you with singing, right? He rejoices in you with his love. And, and so while, yes, my right response is to take joy in the Lord, I think the strength of my refuge is the fact that he takes joy in me. That even when I misstep and even when I lose my way and even when my focus gets shifted and I walk away from him, he does not stop pursuing me. I do not cease to be his son who has been bought by the blood of his son Jesus. It is his joy in me that fixes my focus. Hear me, today, one of the challenges we face is that we lose our way, we sidestep, we make mistakes, and we give in to sinful patterns and temptations. And then we begin to feel remorse over that, which is the right response. Hear me, there are some churches today that will not teach that biblically we are called to repent. And so there are churches that are losing a biblical call to holiness, and that's not good. Everything the culture accepts, church accepts. That is not good. But what also happens today is there are churches that they will definitely call people to repent, but then they don't call people to celebrate. And that's not good either. Jesus didn't die and give us life so we could be defeated. He gave us life so we could be victorious. Right? That's why Romans 8 says we're more than conquerors. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
And so here in Nehemiah 8, as the people have been brought back to Jerusalem, the exiles have returned and they are now fixing their focus and they, are, they have a passion for the word of God to be brought back to them. And now they are pursuing his presence. And while they are grieving over their sin, right, right response, but then Ezra, the priest says, now we're going to stop the grieving and we're going to start the celebrating because the Lord's, the Lord's joy is over you and it is with you. And even though you removed your joy from him, he did not remove his joy from you. We are sealed by the spirit and that becomes the refuge and the fortress and the strength by which we continue to move forward. Pursuing the presence of God is critical to fixing our focus because it reminds us that he's a promise keeping God. That even though I will break my promises, even though I will break my commitments, I will break my covenants to him. Fixing my focus and pursuing his presence reminds me that he is a promise keeping God. I think it's interesting in the text that the platform that Ezra stood on was built for that purpose, it said. Remember, they, they just rebuilt the city, so it's not like it was still there. As they rebuilt the city, they built this platform for this purpose that the priest would get up and he would read the word to them. My question to you, beloved, is have you created a space in your life and in your day and in your routine where you pursue the presence of God? It was not coincidence that this platform would be in place for this very thing to take place. I like to say it like this and hear, hear the phrase, so let me explain it. You can't live on yesterday's Jesus, right? We know that in the Old Testament, when the Israelites would leave Egypt, God would provide for them by, with this substance called manna, right? It, it literally means what is it, right? Which th those that have been uh, bought again by the blood of Jesus know, know that, that it was Whataburger. But um, anyways, <laughs> what else could it be, right? And so uh, it, was, it was Whataburger. And then the text tells us that they were told to, to get enough for the day, but, but not to get more than the need for the day. Because if they got more than they needed for the day, then, then that extra would spoil, right? Which, again, in the Hebrew, it tells us that they got enough water burger for the day, and if they took too much, it became In-N-Out Burger. It spoiled, so. <laughs> Texas forever. So, anyways, um, <laughs> all right, let me reel it in. Let me reel. I'm just keeping you awake. I'm keeping you awake, all right? Listen to me. They were, wh wh why, though? Why were they told to get enough for today? but not enough for tomorrow, like wise planning, right? I mean, you, 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 you invest, you save, you prepare for that rainy day because God was teaching the nation of Israel in the wilderness where he had not forgotten them, by the way, that he would continue to provide for them. We remember what Jesus has done in our past. We remember the cross, the empty tomb. We remember all the ways he has sustained us and kept us, but we do not let yesterday's time in the word or yesterday's time in prayer or last week's time in corporate worship or last week's time in community group, we do not let that sustain us today because Jesus wants to give us new mercies every day. So we pursue his presence and it fixes our focus. Let's pick up in verse 13. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. And they went out and brought, brought back branches and made shelters for themselves and 
each other's and each other for their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. And the Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So here in the text, the people, they've returned to Jerusalem and they ask for the word of God, right? Their passion is pointed in the right places. They receive that word after a a great time, arguably, without that happening. They receive that word read to them and explained to them. That causes them to pursue the presence of God. They weep over their sins, but they celebrate the fact that the, the, the joy of the Lord is their strength. And then the next thing we see happen, part three, they practice what they got. Right? They fix their focus by their passion being pointed to the right place, by the presence that they longed for being the right presence, and then practicing the right practices. Verses 13 to 18 tell us that as they continued to read the law, they, they read about this festival, this party that they hadn't observed in quite some time. The, 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 the Hebrew Jewish calendar in the Old Testament, there were certain parties, right? And you're like, that's, that's not how I've heard it. It's what they were. There are certain festivals and feasts that they were called to observe because in observing these, they were reminded of God's goodness towards them, right? We, we get together every Sunday to remind ourselves of God's goodness towards us as we worship him. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every first Sunday to remind ourselves of God's goodness towards us and the sacrifice of his son. We go crazy when people get baptized, which will happen in this service because it's a testimony of people receiving the work of Jesus in their lives, so we celebrate the goodness of God applied to us. So here in the text, as they're reading the law, they realize, hey, there's a party that we haven't, to quote the kids, observed in a minute, right? It's been a while since we've done this one. The text says since the days of Joshua, so it's definitely been a while. And they say, hey, they read the text, they find something that they hadn't been doing, and they started doing it. Translation, they did what the Bible said to do. Beloved, when your passion is that God would be exalted in your life above all else, and you seek his presence before anything else, it is only a matter of time before the things you practice line up with the way God says to do things. So, so here they, they would gather for what's called in the, in the, C, uh, the CSB, the, the, the festival or feast of shelters. You maybe have heard of the feast of booths or feast of tabernacles. All the same thing, right? One Hebrew word could be translated tabernacle, booth, or shelter. It's the same party that they're talking about. And the funny thing is that of all the Jewish festivals and feasts, this was the most joyous, right? This was the most celebratory. And what they would do is they would gather, as we read in the text here, that they would get some branches and they would kind of create these makeshift kind of lean-to shelters that they would live in for seven days. You're like, that doesn't sound like a celebration. I'm going to move out of my house and move into a you know, a twig shelter, but they would move into this shelter for seven days. And the reason why it was a celebration is because it reminded them of God's faithfulness to them when their ancestors were in the wilderness for 40 years. Listen to me, regardless of what a TV preacher might tell you, nowhere in the Bible will you find out that you won't go through the wilderness. What you will find out is that you won't go through it without Jesus. 
the 23rd Psalm that I love to quote, David didn't say he went around the valley of shadows, he went through it. But he feared no evil because the shepherd was with him. In this life, we have the dark night of the soul, right? We go through brokenness and we go through trials and sorrows, but we don't go through it without Jesus. And so the Feast of Tabernacles slash booths or shelters was a celebration because it was a reminder that God had never left them. Now, I think another reason why it was a celebration is because in the Jewish calendar, there is another holy day, another festival, if you will, and it's called in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, in English, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a heavy day. The Day of Atonement gets an entire chapter in Leviticus. I know Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die, right? January 1, you're like, I'm reading the Bible in a year this year. Genesis, like story after story, you know, you get to Joseph at the end and you pick up Exodus, you're like, it's getting a little heavy, but I can still do it. You know, you get to Leviticus, it's like, woo. Okay. Um, but, but, but Leviticus, the Day of Atonement gets an entire chapter in Leviticus chapter 16. And, and on the Day of Atonement, it was a heavy day for the people because remember that the Old Testament festivals and feasts, they would foreshadow what Jesus would perfect, right? And so the Day of Atonement, it, it happened every year because the people continued to be sinful, right? They, they didn't master giving up sin. And so on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, right, so the, the highest guy in the order, the high priest would go into the holy place or the holy of holies, only one who could do it, only one day a year. And what he would do is he would sacrifice a bull to, to kind of cleanse his sins, right? He did a sacrifice for himself. And then he had two goats, okay? Kind of graphic. And he would take the first goat and he would sacrifice that goat and the blood of that goat would be sprinkled in the holy place. They got the mercy seat, all this stuff, right? It, but it would be sprinkled from the inside out. He would make his way out of the holy place through the tabernacle or the temple, sprinkling the blood of that sacrifice. And then the second goat, it would say in Leviticus 16 that the priest would place his hands on the goat and he would pray that the sins of the people, right, would be transmitted, transferred to that goat. And then the goat was set free not to be seen again. And so, now listen to me, stay with me. You're like, ooh, it's getting kind of history channel on me. Just stay with me. So the Day of Atonement would be this heavy day where the sins of the people are at the forefront. And every year, right, it had to happen again and again and again. It wasn't like once for all. And the priests were working and working and working. And on the Day of Atonement, the nation and the people were very aware of their sinfulness before God. And then do you know that it was five days later that they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles? It would be five days after the heaviness of the Day of Atonement that they would throw a party because they recognized that God's grace had continued to be applied to them. You know, in our calendar, I would argue the greatest celebration that we do is Easter. Do you know why it's such a celebration? Because Good Friday happened. Because Jesus went to the cross and he absorbed our sin and he took the wrath of God so that all those who would call upon his name might be saved. They would receive the gift of salvation so that the empty tomb on Sunday is a celebration because the cross took the sins on Friday. And so these people in Nehemiah, they would practice what they saw in the text. And what they would practice would be a reminder of who they are in Christ. 
Beloved, listen to me. I think one of the things that attacks us the most, or one of the ways that Satan attacks us the most for believers, if you've given your life to Jesus, is he gets to our identity. Biblically, we believe, according to what Jesus would pray in John 17, the high priestly prayer, that when we give our life to Christ, we're sealed. We cannot be unsealed. And so Satan would love to mess with our identity. And I think what happens today, we get our focus shifted because we lose sight of our identity. We, we end up walking in sinful patterns. Hear me, that is not what we should do. If you're walking in a sinful pattern, do not believe that I'm giving you permission to do so. We walk in sinful patterns and then sometimes what happens is we start walking in sinful patterns and we look at the times when we walked with Christ and we're like, man, that's not who I am, this is who I am. I'm just this guy, I'm just this girl, and at the end of the day, I'm just, I, I can't get past this, I, I, I'm a loser, I'll always want this sinful stuff, I can't be who God says I should be, and so our identity gets twisted, and we say, this is what I do, this is who I am, but Paul would write to the church at Rome, and he would say, I don't do the things I want to do, I do the things I don't want to do, hear me. When you sin and you walk in patterns of sin, the right response is repentance, grief, and then celebration because God welcomes you back. But Satan messes with our identity, so we sin and we sin and we sin, and then we say, well, that's just who I am. But as we sang a few moments ago, we don't get to decide who we are. He does. I am who you say I am. I am forgiven. I am chosen. I am loved. There is a place prepared for me. I am who you say I am. And the way we walk in that, the way we walk in that is practicing what we find in the text, right, as we pursue his presence because our passion is indeed for more of him. We, even on our worst days when we feel like we are worthless, we don't get to decide who we are, he does. And if you've given your life to Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. And so the response is that we start acting like it. And so it's not that we casually dismiss what the Bible says. Listen to me, we got people in churches today, probably this one, saying, you know what, it's 2022, me and this girl, me and this guy, we are in love. We've been in love for a long time. We got kids. We live together. We're not married. It's good. It's not. We don't back off from Scripture, but then we don't live in condemnation and say, well, well, that, well we've, we've done it this way for so long. No, we say the Scripture speaks to the covenant of marriage, a blessing from God himself. And so we don't dismiss the Scripture, but we also don't say that we're just, you know, damaged goods. We say, God, I actually want to do what you say. Beloved, when you come to the word of God and you find things that don't align with your life, you will change your life to match the word or change the word to match your life. One will bring life, one will rob your joy. We practice what the Bible teaches, right? You can only practice what the Bible teaches if you're pursuing the presence of God on a regular basis. And you'll only do that if your passion is indeed for more of him. We've got to get the identity piece figured out. The identity piece is critical to fixing our focus. And let me tell you how that works. Practicing what we see in scripture, that's called obedience, right? Sometimes we say, well, we just got to be more obedient. You know, you, we're just a bunch of dirty sinners. We just got to be more obedient. But what I believe to be true is that many times for the believer in Christ, 
when we are walking in seasons of disobedience, it's because our joy is misplaced and the joy is misplaced because our identity is misunderstood. So we come to understand that, that God doesn't love me because of what I can do for him. That, that his joy over me isn't conditional on my joy in him. But because he's called me his son, he's called me his own. And so his joy over me remains and sustains. And so I begin to understand who he says I am. And when I understand that, I willfully put my joy in him. I don't put my joy in temporary relationships as good as they can be like my marriage or my children or ministry or church or affluence or influence. I put my joy in him. And the funny thing, hear me, it sounds simple. When your joy is squarely rooted in Christ, obedience is usually not a problem. When your joy is in the fact that you are who he says you are, that that he doesn't leave you or forsake you, that he has a place prepared for you, an eternal home set aside for you, and you come to the word of God and you come to what can be a sensitive subject like I just mentioned, today's cultural acceptance of a cohabitation, you're like, oh, hold on a second. Wow, this isn't what the Bible says. It says that there is a covenant of marriage that should, that, that should be honored. And so I'm not going to feel defeated. I'm not going to say that I'm worthless garbage. I'm going to match my life to the word of God. And as I match my life to the word of God, my joy is in God. And all of a sudden, I'm practicing what God said to do. Now listen, you're like, oh yeah, get them, preacher. There's plenty of us that are married that still aren't honoring the covenant of marriage. Looking at junk online, flirting with someone at work, or just not loving and honoring the one that you're committed to in covenant. You're like, well, they don't honor and covet and commit to me. Well, guess what? You control you. And maybe instead of putting your joy in the marriage, you put your joy in the Lord, and then you can do what he says to do in practice, right? Oh, y'all talk about giving. All these people clap when we do our tithes and offerings. I ain't clapping. I'm barely getting by. It, it, tense conversations, 22 years of ministry, I've had people ask me, Pastor, I, I barely pay my bills. You think the Lord wants me to tithe? I sure do. Yeah. Might change things, actually. But hear me, hear me. You're like, oh, he's talking about money. Here we go. Put in the AirPod, right? Listen to me. I've said it before. Jesus made it clear. The gates of hell can't prevail against his church. I think we're building his church. So we're good, okay? God doesn't need our money. His net worth is not dependent on our tithes. We need him, right? And beloved, when our joy is in him, generosity is a byproduct. We get our identity right. We get our joy right. I promise you, obedience follows. I'm not saying it's always easy. Right? It's continual. Right? Jesus would say, take up your cross daily and follow me. We see the people in the book of Nehemiah that have been in captivity because of their ancestral sin of rejecting God's commands. The nation is taken captive. They have been without the ability to worship. They have responded because Nehemiah's faithfulness to go to rebuild the city. And for the first time, and we don't know how long, tens of thousands of people gather for church. Their passion is getting put in the right place. The presence that they long for isn't themselves, it's him. And then they observe the Feast of Tabernacles because they wanted to practice what they saw the Word of God called them to practice. And so here's my question for you today. Where are you in that spectrum? What are your passions today? What are your passions? Like what, what, what is it really that keeps you going? 
I know it can sound so kind of out there and churchy to say it, could, it should be Jesus, but the truth is it should be, and it can be. But we have to acknowledge when it's not. Listen, you're all better people, you're all better people than I am, right? But you know, sometimes my passion is not Jesus. Sometimes I give in to things that are temporary and of this earth, and, I, and I, I want my, I'm more concerned about my presence than his presence. But because of his grace, I can always realign those things back to him. Where are our passions, and, and what does our pursuit of his presence look like? This is where the sermon goes on repeat, right? You say, pursuing his presence, Chris, that sounds real kind of out there. Again, we'll break it down. They, they, they built this platform for this purpose that Ezra would read the law from. Are you building into your days and weeks times to practice the presence of God? I, I promise you, if you do not build it in, it will not build itself. It's, it sounds not spiritual and it sounds real canned, but listen to me. There's nothing not spiritual about being disciplined with the Lord. And saying, you know what, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., my lunch break, 9 p.m., I'm going to get into the word of God. And you say, Chris, I don't know where to go. Here we go. Some of you could finish what I'm going to say. Pick the book of Psalms and read the first five in the next seven days. You know what the Psalms are? They're songs. So if you like music, you'll love it. Five in seven days. Go to Proverbs, read one a day for a month, 31 Proverbs, right? Go to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, Life Story of Jesus, Shortopians to the church at Philippi while he was in prison, right? Pretty good perspective. Four chapters, read one chapter a week for a month. Decide to get into the word. Where is the space where you will make time to commune with the Father through prayer, right? That is that is pursuing his presence. That's a practice of spiritual discipline. So great that you are here today watching online. Be here next week. Let me tell you, one of the, one of the and I, I've mentioned this a lot recently, and so you just gotta accept this. It's on my heart. One of the things I still grieve from the great sort and reset of 2020 is that today there are many believers across our country, but I mean right here in our community and at our church that have not yet reconnected with the body of Christ. I'm sure some people have gone to another church, but there are people that have not reconnected here that were, that were actively connected. Listen to me, I celebrate the gift of online ministry. I celebrate that today we have people watching that don't live close to a physical campus. If that's you, please don't just consume this. Invite friends into your li living room next week. Make that a watch party, a little house church, right? I'm thankful that when those of us online ministry isn't the bad guy, it's a gift from God. But those that are in proximity and physically able to reconvene with the saints, you should feel like the people in Nehemiah are ready to get back to it. We've got to practice these things, right? We have to pursue the presence of God. We need to get into community, whether that's a CG or our men's and women's studies. Find a place to go deeper and belong, right? We've got to practice the presence of God. What does that look like for you? The answer is not simply to go, well, that was a good message, which we all agree, by the way, and to leave and forget, but to actually think about what is next for you. If your joy is being connected to the Lord, then what is your next step of obedience? Maybe there are some couples to get today, and you need to get married. We would love to talk to you about that and help make that a reality. Maybe there are some of us and God is speaking some specific things to us about our workplace or someone we should talk to about Jesus. Maybe some of us, we have given our lives to Christ, but we have not been obedient in baptism. Here's the deal. 
Obedience and joy, remember they're connected. The more you're disobedient, the less joy you have. And so today, maybe you want to come forward if you're in this room and say, man, I need to get baptized. You're watching online, you can text us. 97,000 is our number. Type BT baptism, one word, no space. You're watching online, you're like, yeah, but I live out of state. We will figure it out, I promise. I'm waiting for that first opportunity I have to fly somewhere and baptize somebody. I will do it, all right? But for some of us in this room or online, what today's decision needs to be is not a next decision, but a first decision. See, there's this amazing truth in Scripture that God pursues us. And he offers his presence to us. The scripture makes no bones about it. Romans would teach us that all of us are sinners, right? You're like, oh, not me. Yeah, all. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the standard of God. What does that mean? That means that we need that day of atonement in our own lives. The book of Romans also tells us that even though we are sinful and have missed the mark, that, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Jesus would die for us. Don't miss this. That day of atonement that would take place in the Old Testament, you know how often it happened? Every single year. Another day of atonement and another day of atonement and another day of atonement and another day of atonement because the people would continue sinning, so sacrifice had to continue to be made. But in one of my favorite books of scripture, scripture Hebrews, we get in chapter one and the first four verses, we find out that there's a high priest named Jesus and he made purification for sins. He did the sacrifice and then you know what he did? He did something no other high priest had ever done. He sat down. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the Father. You know why? Because Jesus could do what no human priest could do. He could be a once-for-all sacrifice so that when we would call upon him, there's no more day of atonement, but we will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles every time we get together. We will celebrate his provision that we are who he says we are, that we have a place provided for us. But that only happens when we receive that gift by grace through faith when the presence of God becomes real for you. And today, if you don't know what you've done with Jesus, meaning you don't know if you've made that decision to receive that gift, the decision you need to make is just that. You can't take a next step till you take your first step. And I promise you, no matter what your past look like, looks like, his arms are wide open. And with hands scarred by the nails that put him on the cross to take your sins and God's wrath to offer you life, he welcomes you to himself, but he does not force himself. We must choose to respond because in that same book of Romans, in chapter 10, verse nine, we read that if we would believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so today, if you're in this room or you're watching online and you don't know if you've made that decision to receive the gift that is Jesus, I'm gonna give you that opportunity. I'm gonna ask that everyone bow their head and close their eyes. If you're ready to make that decision, if you're ready to have your identity redefined and, and to not be defined by who you or anyone else says you are, but who God says you are, then I ask you to say this prayer with me. Hear me, 
that prayer is not a magic formula. Do not believe that mindlessly reciting words that the preacher says does something. But if in your heart you know that you need an answer, you need a savior, you need hope, then the prayer is Romans 10, 9. It is believing and confessing. And so if that's you today, you wanna make that decision in this room or online, then wherever you are, just pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I need you and I am hopeless without you. But I believe you made a way for me to be made whole. I believe you sent your son Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth. I believe he lived without sin. And I believe in obedience, he died on the cross and paid for sin. And I believe that three days later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose again. And so Jesus, today, I'm trusting you with my life. And I'm asking you to be my savior. Will you help me live for you every day of my life? Thank you for loving me first. It's in your name I pray. Amen.